Speaking of music, can anybody else hear that? Can you hear that? It's, it sounds, sounds like it's coming from my Bible. It sounds strangely like Mick Jagger. It's coming from Ecclesiastes. I can't get no satisfaction. You want a theme for the book of Ecclesiastes? It's I can't get no satisfaction. All triviality aside, or most of it maybe, I, I can hardly read much of the book of Ecclesiastes without that song coming in my head by the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. It really is a great theme from the perspective of Solomon. Solomon is passionately looking, searching for ultimate meaning in life. And he is doing so with great tenacity and, and, and with great persistence, with great power, with great wealth. He is looking for ultimate and therefore lasting meaning in life. And if he would have been writing this in the 1960s, it would have been called, I can't get no satisfaction because he can't. He simply can't. It is a dark book. It's a desperate book. For 11 plus chapters, it's dark until we finally come to the end and we're told, oh yes, there's some hints along the way, but we're finally told that the one and only way life is going to be meaningful is if you have a true knowledge of God. If you have that lens of a true knowledge of God through which you can see everything, then life has meaning, then life has lasting meaning, and then everything has meaning. But it takes us a long time to get there, and it's dark in the meantime. Sort of like we like to say with the gospel, if you can understand how bad the bad news is, you will better appreciate and see how wonderful and how magnificent the good news is. And that's sort of how Ecclesiastes is laid out. In chapter 1, verse 2, we have an opening sentence, and really it's the summary sentence as well. In Ecclesiastes 1, 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity could also be translated completely meaningless, completely meaningless. Everything is meaningless. 35 plus times that word is hauntingly used throughout the book. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Vanity of vanities. It's the double emphasis, sort of like, to make the point of ultimate, sort of like the Song of Solomon is sometimes called what? The Song of Songs. It's the ultimate song. Jesus is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the ultimate King and ultimate Lord. And here Solomon says, life, meaninglessness of meaninglessness. It's the ultimate in vanity. How down is that? Again, I promise you that we won't wait till chapter 12 to look at the light. Along the way, every single week, every single time, without fail, we'll, we'll speed ahead, at least mentally, to see that there's hope. 
lest we all end up in rubber-walled rooms with hidden objects hidden or sharp objects hidden. Hidden objects sharp, you know how it goes. We do need hope along the way and we'll find it and, and see it ultimately in Christ along the way. Well, this morning what we're going to do as we look at chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and following through chapter 2, is we're going to see that Solomon, we're going to join Solomon in three pursuits. Three life pursuits that don't deliver. Three life pursuits that promise ultimate meaning, but they don't deliver. Three life pursuits that do not deliver, that fail to deliver. And they are ones that we think will deliver oftentimes. The three are as follows. Wisdom or education. Wisdom or education. Number two, pleasure. And number three, work. I don't even need illustrations this morning. (laughs) Because we are definitely about education. Thinking sometimes it will give us ultimate fulfillment in life. Pleasure, we're definitely about pleasure, thinking it will give us ultimate lasting fulfillment in life. And many of us are definitely into work, thinking it will give us lasting ultimate fulfillment in life. And Solomon wants to take us on the journey and show us ultimately they're all empty if you don't have a true and right understanding of who God is, a lens through which you can see these things where they will have meaning in the end. Did I say it's going to be dark? (laughs) It's going to be dark. But we'll get some glimpses along the way of light along the way. Well, let's jump right in and learn from Solomon, considered the wisest person on the planet based upon history, even Old Testament history. Let's go ahead and look at the pursuit of wisdom showing itself ultimately as empty if it's an end in and of itself. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, I the preacher, or I the professor, or I the sage, I the wise counselor. That's the idea, the kind of, kind of person that people would flock to and want to go and hear from. I, that guy, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. What does that mean if you weren't here with us for our introductory study? He's the king. That means he has power we could fill in a little bit more if we wanted to go to the, to the kings and, and different places in the scriptures and even outside of scripture. He has power. He has ability. He has knowledge. He's considered the wisest man in the land. So he knows what he's talking about, in other words. Let's keep going. Verse 13 says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Notice the exhaustiveness of it all. I want to search high and low under every rock and every philosophy and everywhere I can go to learn as much as I can. I want to be as educated as I can to find meaning in that. And then there's a depressing finding in verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold... All is vanity or all is futility and a striving after wind. Not the guy you want to recruit to be your poster boy for education. He won't help enrollment. Because ultimately he's going to say, it's futility. Apart from a very key ingredient... 
It's a big waste. And it's as if to say in this letter, trust me, I know I'm the king of Jerusalem. I'm the wisest guy in the land. People come from Egypt to come and listen to what I have to say about things. I've tried it. Then he gives this, what we know from literature to be a proverbial saying in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. There's something fundamentally wrong with the world. And do notice he did refer to it in verse uh, 14 as everything and all. Then he uses this little proverbial statement, this little statement from the culture. What is crooked cannot be made straight. You know what? I looked everywhere and I found out that it's broken. This is why I like to say we live in a broken world. He's saying we live in a broken world and it's so broken that you can try to fix it with education but if you really uh, see it through to its end, yeah, there might be a temporary fix but in the end, it doesn't work. It can't be fixed. It is a broken world and the answer to it is not education. Then he says in verse 15, and what is lacking cannot be counted. (laughs) That's a weird statement, isn't it? What is lacking cannot be counted. It's meant to be weird. It's meant to be absurd. That's a truism of of absurdity. If there isn't something, you can't count it. And again, probably that was something that was used in the culture just to make the point about absurdity. If you think you can fix the brokenness in the world by just learning more and find ultimate fulfillment in that, he's saying, you know what? You're, you're, You're foolish. I know that is what he's saying. Then let's keep going in verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. By the way, he's not just an egomaniac. Other people were thinking the same. That's why they would come from afar to come hear him. And my heart has had great experience with wisdom and knowledge. And and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know, just for good measure, and to know madness and folly. How about that? Just for good measure. Oftentimes, by the way, like really, really, really smart people do. They're going to pursue being really, really smart, and that's not really scratching the itch. And so you know what? I'm a really, really smart guy, and so I might even apply my intellect at foolishness. Because this is not solving the quest for reality and meaning. I'm going to try something ridiculous. And he's going to say that that, that's not it either. I perceive, we keep reading in verse 17, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation or aggravation or displeasure. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Think about that sort of haunting statement. I mean, learning is exciting. I love to learn. Learning is great. You teach your kids something. We have one of our little ones learning to read and getting better and better at it. And it's exciting. It opens up a whole new world. And learning is wonderful. But you sometimes begin to think that that's the answer. And then you learn more and more and more and more and have an gr- gr- increasing appetite for learning because it, it's giving you so much freedom to start with. And, and then really, really, really smart people figure out Oftentimes, it doesn't give me ultimate meaning in life. It's not really where it's at. It seems like it's going to be when we first start learning. But it's ultimately futile. In 1932, George Eastman of Eastman Kodak fame 
wrote these last words. My work is done. Why wait? And then he killed himself. I did what I'm going to do in life through my education. Why wait? There's an interesting little bio on him that came in an article called Top Ten Scientists Who Committed Suicide. A lot of times really, really smart people figure out what sometimes the rest of us haven't figured out. And that's education isn't the answer for ultimate meaning in life. It might be a great means to a certain end, but when it becomes the pursuit as the end, it's bankrupt. Solomon's having us know that. Think about where we are as human beings. And by the way, Solomon seems to be writing from the vantage point, not from an atheist, not from a strict naturalist, because he talks about God, but from some sort of deist. He, he believes in a God, but he, he, he's not been exposed to the true knowledge of God. So even the pursuit of wisdom, if you don't have the first step of wisdom, is going to lead to futility. The first step of wisdom is going to be, according to Proverbs chapter 1, the beginning of all wisdom is the, what? Fear of the Lord, the fear of God which is something we throw around a lot, but big idea would be, certainly that includes a true knowledge of God. If you don't have a true knowledge of God as wisdom's first principle, you're going to find it empty and lacking. But we like education, and we act like oftentimes education is a great and mighty Savior. Education is great. The Bible's all for learning. Christianity is about learning. We're absolutely about increasing in knowledge. In fact, the Bible talks like that. But knowledge is a really, really bad savior. It doesn't give you ultimate meaning. It doesn't solve your ultimate problem, which is you're going to learn a lot, and then you die. <laughs> but we're definitely into it, and in one sense, rightfully so. But we better know first principle. Think about how we are, even in our culture, in the United States of America, 13 years of education, not counting any kind of preschool or parental training, and then it's probably expected of you to go to college, and then it might be expected of you to get a master's degree, and then maybe a doctorate, and even if you don't go that far in your letters behind your name, you've got continuing education, you've got continual training at the workplace, and these things are very good and helpful. But they're really bad saviors. And Solomon wants us to know that. Because in the end, they can't rescue you from your ultimate problem. And they can't give you ultimate meaning in the meantime. Boys and girls, lest you say, I'm not going to school tomorrow because it's futility of futilities. Um, again, the Bible puts a premium on education provided we have the first principle of education, which is the fear of God, a true knowledge of who God is. We have to remember that. 
And it's so easy for us not to remember that. You and I live in a world surrounded by people who don't know that. And they do act as if it is a savior. Solomon, the wisest man on the planet at the time, arguing from the greater to the lesser, if he's the wisest, then I'm not, but I can learn from him. The answer ultimately isn't in the letters behind my name. But as we'll see, those things can be used for good too, provided we have the first right step. Let's move on now, and let's move to the second pursuit that doesn't deliver lasting meaning, and that's the pursuit of pleasure. I'm excited about this one because I like pleasure. And so do you, probably. Unless you should be hidden from sharp objects. Generally, we like pleasure, right? We, wanna, we, we, we love pleasure. Who doesn't like pleasure? Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Man, I'm excited about this one. This is going to be good. I'm going to be able to identify with this. For honest, verse 1 then says, But, behold, this also was vanity. You say, what do you know? It's kind of what we want to maybe object with. I'd like to try it. (laughs) But again, the argument in Ecclesiastes is from the greater to the lesser. Been there, done that. My name's Solomon and let me help you out lest you waste your life. So let's keep going. Verse 2 says, I said, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Verse, and again, the context is when it comes to lasting ultimate value. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. How about that? He's applying his smartness, his wisdom to pleasure. And how to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So, so he's not necessarily like a guy like me who says, I'm just going to give my life to pleasure and see if I can find meaning in that. He's a really, 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 really smart guy. Saying, I'm going to find ultimate meaning in pleasure. So he would be better at hedonism than I would be. He'd be a really, really, really good and effective hedonist. Self-pleasure. Because he would know how to do it better than I would or better than you would. So again, if he's going to find emptiness, I would too. I'd give it my best shot to be a hedonist in my best. But I probably wouldn't measure up to him. Let's go to verse 4 then. We'll just read this section from, from 4 down to verse 10. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. It's even got some good technology going on there. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, many lovers, many sexual partners, the delight of the sons of man. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. How about that? 
And some of us secretly are thinking, I'd like to try that. I mean, this is MTV Cribs Jerusalem edition. And he not only won, they retired his jersey. And this is like the ultimate. Who are we talking about here? Oh, Solomon. He becomes the A point by which we measure everything else. Solomon. He's not even up as a contestant. He's the winner before the contest even starts. That kind of guy. And he's not the kind of guy that you see on television from Louisiana who lives, who wins the lottery. Who has lost more teeth than he has. Hey, yo, boy, I got got myself a lottery, man. I'm moving out of the trailer park, you know. (laughs) And you're you're going, if you live live in Louisiana, you're going, oh, man. (laughs) Now everybody's going to think I'm like this guy. Don't think of Solomon like that. Solomon is the wisest guy around, famous for his wisdom, powerful and rich. He knows how to do it right. He's not the fool squandering all of these things on more lottery tickets or whatever it might be. He's the man. He knows what he's doing when he's giving himself passionately to pleasure. And so he can speak effectively and say what he says in the text here. Look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, all was futility, all was fatalistic and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. See, it is the greater to the lesser. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And as there is more gain in light than in darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Kind of an interesting musing that he participates in there. Even without supernatural true revelation about who God is, He's still making some wise observations just based upon looking at the data. You know, one thing I have figured out is it's better to be wise than it is to be foolish. Just like lots of unbelievers can figure out. He's figuring that out. Then verse 14 goes on to say, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. How about that? Got all the stuff, the mansions. I figured out that death becomes me. The empire won't be lasting and it won't bring ultimate fulfillment is what he's saying. If we read on in verse 15, Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. That's a huge reality statement at the end of 16. So I hated life. And in a sense I want to say he makes that statement wisely. 
I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. At that point in time, I'm reading Ecclesiastes and I want to be like Solomon and maybe you too. You just want to go, ah. And if, and if you don't feel a sense of the, of the, of the building pressure of the dirt being piled up because he's saying, you know what, in the end, you know what happens is we're all six feet under anyway. In the end, we're all pushing up the daisies anyway. And if, and if you're, you're hearing this and you don't feel something of the, of the, of the weight of the pressure and the futility of it all, you know what? Either A, you're in total denial. Or B, you're a Christian. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the latter. But he's not to that point yet talking about the good news. And he's saying, surely you can identify with this. Surely you could be sane enough to learn from me based upon what I've experienced to know that this is not where you want to Stake your claim. It just leads to futility and frustration, desperation. But once again, you see, if we can get this real, real, you know, dim the light, so to speak, and get it really dark, then the answer, true knowledge of God. In theology, we call it special revelation. The Bible is special revelation. Jesus is special revelation. The lens through which everything makes sense. Who is wisdom himself. We're ready for the light then. Think about what brings you pleasure. This should be pleasuresome. If you make a list of things that you find pleasure in. It should be easy. They're the things you long for. They're the things you save for. They're the things you take credit for. My list, in no particular order, since sex is number one on the list, I get myself in trouble. I was just musing. What do you? What do we like as a culture? What sells? It's because it's what people buy: sex, clothes, food, recreation, vacation, travel, beauty, exercise, the arts. Cars, boats, motorcycles, homes, home remodeling. That wouldn't be on my list. It would be on my wife's list. Let's paint this room. Why? It has paint in the room. (laughs) If we could only have new curtains, why? Those curtains keep the light out. Um, Point being, we all have our different priorities. But obviously, we like pleasure. We find fulfillment in these things. And what's interesting and needs to be heard loud and clear in light of a whole biblical worldview is, these things are all good. Or they can all be good. But none of them is a good savior. But they function as functional saviors all the time. And Solomon wants us to know, the wisest man alive wants us to know that these things are 
bad saviors and they will betray you every single time. Vanity of vanity. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Don't count on them for fulfillment in your life because they won't deliver. Because you have bikes, motorcycles, home remodels, sex, pleasure, food, exercise, and then you die. It's interesting, he used laughter. And you kind of want to say, well, you know, Solomon really wasn't aware of the, the, the latest psychological studies and laughter is actually good for you and if he would have only known that. and You know, I think Solomon actually chaired the study. <laughs> because the things he talks about are good things. He's not discrediting these things he talks about being good. But they're not good saviors. And when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to be laughing. It didn't rescue you. It didn't really solve your biggest problem. We need to remember that. Good things used inappropriately without the lens of supernatural divine revelation, a true knowledge of God is going to be problematic. Let's move to a third pursuit that doesn't deliver when it comes to ultimate meaning, and that's the pursuit of work. You guys are all ready to call in sick tomorrow. Work doesn't matter anyway. That's biblical. <laughs> well, you're half right. <laughs> let's, let's work through verses 18 and following. I hated all my toil. Just send that text to your boss. <laughs> the wisest man on earth says... <laughs> No, don't do that. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. You should think about that tomorrow as you think your work is your savior. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. You see, it's hard enough to know that it's not going to be yours, but it's even worse to think about what somebody else might do with what you've accomplished. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is futility, vanity. Verse 20, so I turned and, and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Implied negative answer, right? I got nothing. Verse 23, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, disturbing troubles. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Work, 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 work. And then you die. bad savior now he brings God into the equation which is kind of a breath of fresh air because he doesn't do it too often but the God he's going to talk about is not one he fully knows as God has revealed himself he makes some right observations about God but what's interesting is 
It's not knowledge of the true God, a true knowledge of the true God, because it ends up being vanity still. Let's work through verses 24 and following, and then we'll wrap up. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. It's a good life verse, by the way. <laughs> by the way, that, a wise person in the work context comes to that kind of conclusion. You know, you know what? Can't take it with me. Might as well enjoy it. But that's not all he has to say. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So, so there's, there's deism involved. Might not be the true God, but he at least acknowledges that this is from God or a God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So he, he's a monotheist believing in some kind of sovereign God. He is, and then he says in verse 26, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... Uh, the one who doesn't please God, the, we might call him the bad guy. So there's a good guy and a bad guy. He's not using sinner like in a Pauline sense. Um, you've got good people, quote unquote, relatively speaking. You have bad people, quote unquote, relatively speaking. He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. You just pause there for a second. He's, what he's working through in his mind, through the naked eye, not through the lens of supernatural revelation... Is he seeing how God is sovereign in the world and he's seeing something about, you know, how the good guy wins and that's the right way for it to happen and he's viewing it in that sort of sense? But he's not clear-headed. He's not biblically minded about this and we know that's the case because of what he says at the end. Look at verse 26. This also is vanity and striving after wind. It still doesn't help me with my problem. It still, it still doesn't have work be the end all, the fulfillment in my life. It, it, it's a bit of a shocker, but it's meant to be. Work is still a bad savior. Now, by the way, the Bible values work. Don't call in sick tomorrow unless you're sick. In fact, the Bible would say to Christians, if you don't work, you shouldn't what? You shouldn't eat. So laziness doesn't have a premium on it. Hey, I learned Ecclesiastes and man, life just pretty much is a drag and then you die and work is useless and somebody's just going to get my stuff anyway. And It's not where it's at. But the point is being made as clear as you can possibly make it apart from a true knowledge of life and God, your job is futile. And we live in a world where people don't know this. They haven't gotten this memo. And they say things like, my life is my work. My work is my life. And many others don't say that, but they act like it. And it is a functional Savior. My identity ultimately is bound up in my work, is how we function sometimes. And Solomon is trying to be wise and take us by the hand and say, you're going to die, pal. It's not where it's at. Don't be that guy. It's really foolish.
I tried it. Don't do that. I'd ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12 with me, if you would, to end on a wonderful, thrilling, high note where you can have meaning in your job. Don't call in sick. Go in early. (laughs) Where you can have meaning in that pleasure. Indulge. Where you can be motivated to learn. Excel. And we learn it from Romans chapter 12. But as you're turning there, maybe just to illustrate the point of all of this and drive it home. We talk about learning, knowledge. We talk about pleasure. We talk about work. Here's my week. The last, just let me give you a glimpse of 10 days. I've been trying to learn. I've been reading some books. Imagine that. I've been learning so much, I'm able to do some teaching. Trying to learn more, trying to learn about God, trying to learn about other things, trying to work hard, get a degree, another degree. Did a little vacation planning this week for some pleasure, you know, looking at those dates later on in the summer when we might be able to get away as a family. Molly and I are going to go to a concert this week. That's pleasure, uh, the arts. I'm trying to work hard this week. Trying to do a good job. On Thursday, I was laying face down on a surgery table. And the doctor said, hey, we're going to do the surgery. We're going to cut your arm open. We're going to go in there with a laser and burn some things. And, but I think you're going to be okay. Uh, you're just going to be at pretty high risk for, for having... Uh, the bad kind of skin cancer. Okay, it's a little sobering, you know. Biopsy's no big deal, but you're laying down and they're putting sheets over you. And, and then the nurse says, this is pretty scary, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks a lot. If, Miss Nurse, you're here today, thank you, you made my sermon. Um, I'm like, what kind of awful nurse are you? <laughs> this is really scary, isn't it? By the way, if you're a nice kind of nurse, God bless you. Um, <laughs> it was one of those things where I was like, oh, by the way, just as a footnote, this is the same nurse who said, I like the smell of burning human flesh. Um, hello. Uh, <laughs> sadistic and cruel. But here's the thing. I don't like those kind of nurses. I think they should be fired (laughs) and locked up with sharp objects in rubber rooms. (laughs) But here's the thing. It was not a big deal. It's not a big surgery. You know, just kind of move on, go do it. It's just part of the deal. But it was helpful. The jerk of a nurse was helpful because it got me thinking. Work hard, enjoy life, pleasure, learn, and then you die. And oh, by the way, you're going to die. So here's the thing. 
How can it all be meaningful? How can it all be meaningful? The one way it can all be meaningful is if the end part and then you die gets solved. Which is what we celebrate and and live for and, and, and find wonderful as Christians. Last week we talked at length about Jesus being raised from the dead. Well, that's all wonderful and great and really important. But what we looked at last time is he's referred to as the first fruits. That means there's more. That means there's a harvest. He's called the firstborn from the dead. That means there's more. And all who are united by, to him by faith will be raised too. It's not blah, 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 blah. And then you die. And you know what? You might as well just get it over with now. Like Solomon will say to us. Because we have one who's conquered the grave. And his name is Jesus. And oh, by the way, if that's the case, our ultimate death problem is solved. And now the things that we do in the meantime have meaning and lasting value because they can be for his honor and his glory and his fame. And so we work hard as unto the Lord and we enjoy his good gifts because he's the giver of every good gift. And we seek to increase in our knowledge. That's what Colossians 1 says, increasing in our knowledge of God. And we do so because of the work of Christ, because of special revelation. We can understand this. Romans chapter 12 is so amazing in this regard, because in Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, after explaining the gospel, after explaining uh, it's not and then you die and that's it, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies... And I'm not taking any liberties. That's inclusive. So that includes your education. That includes your work. That includes your pleasure. That includes your everything. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And you go, hallelujah. Mick Jagger doesn't have anything on that. Because satisfaction is found in giving gratitude to Christ who conquered the grave. And now we worship the risen Christ. And how about your work, your life, your parenting, your whatever it is matters. Because it's not your savior. You see? This is wonderful. This is magnificent. This is for the glory of God. And this gives us hope and meaning. And this is the expanded version of what Solomon's going to tell us in chapter 12. Have a true knowledge of God. And the true knowledge of God comes to us ultimately through Christ. So maybe he be praised. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for our time and our opportunity to study Ecclesiastes. And indeed, may we find everything in life to be vanity of vanities so that we can see the greatness of Jesus Christ, so that we can see his beauty and his magnificence and his great grace and his great mercy, so that we would, we of all people, would go to work and we would work for the glory of Christ. And we of all people would want to be learners and to be educated people for the glory of Christ. And we of all people would pursue pleasure in life pleasure that would honor you and and glorify you. And as we enjoy so many great pleasures in life, may we not see them as saviors, but coming from the hand of you, the good savior. 
and may you give us opportunities. Please, God, give us opportunities as men and women who are here today to open our mouths and to speak well of you, to speak clearly about the meaning of life, that Christ may be praised. In whose name we pray, amen.